I have found the key Honey darling, you believe Lonesome roads we've seen Well honey darling, keep your eyes wide and see That we can join our hands And take for hours all of this land Honey darling, you understand if it's hill in your heart, I can. And this is Seriously Wrong Podcast. <laughs> it is the Seriously Wrong Podcast because that is not the name of our podcast. What's the name of our podcast? Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. Armchair Apocrypha. This is the only podcast where the hosts have to wrestle a large dog <laughs> every recording. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we win, sometimes <laughs> we lose. Sometimes we lose hardcore. <laughs> oh, how was your week? It was good. It flew by. Yeah. I haven't seen Probably you. In days. I haven't seen you since last Friday, I don't think. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> okay. I'm tired right now. Me too. It's me been too. a long week. I can only There's been imagine. so much going on. That's probably why I haven't seen you. Yeah. Man. But I have my Prosecco. You've got your wine. Yep. Cheers. It's going to be a good night. Oh, yeah. Let's actually cheers. Yeah. Ting. I hear you. <laughs> Hey! Thank you. Mm. Sweet. Yeah. Bubbly. Very nice. Good. I'm actually drinking uh, Mary's Prosecco. So, Mary, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. Suck it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy it's you more. It's been here for like eight months. It, it's fine. It has been here for a few months, yeah. Um, I'll buy you some more next time you're over. <laughs> Maybe. I'm just joking. Probably not. Probably not. Um... The uh, the new Raspberry Pi uh, four was just announced this week, um, and it's only like fifty dollars. So I'm probably gonna buy that. The what? The new Raspberry Pi. That's the thing we're recording on right now. Oh, I thought you were talking about dessert. Nope. Okay. The Raspberry Pi four was released this week, or it was announced this week. So okay. depending on when it's released, I'm gonna buy that, okay. and hopefully our recording quality one proves. <laughs> God bless. Thank you. Um, <coughs> okay, I'm done. I promise. God bless again. Thank you. Uh, so hopefully our recording quality will be improved sometime in the next month. It shall be. Um, yeah, I was interviewed about my work yesterday. How'd uh, It was pretty good. Good. Talked about defaulted loans, which is one mm. of my weaker points, but I think I made a uh, a good case for coming to KCAC. Okay. Um, Excuse me. The the cameraman um our ac units at work are loud oh great um and it's very hot so i i usually run my ac unit all the time yep but when you're videotaping and you have one of the uh clip-on mics uh it can interfere with the recording so he was like can we turn the ac off and i was like yeah no problem so i was doing the interview and i had just sweat dripping uh -huh. dripping down my mm -hmm. my head um, and then we got together to do a group shot in the hallway mm -hmm. and we did it in the hottest part of the hallway. Why not? And my interview was fine. It only took like three takes. <laughs> um, and he was like, that's perfect. I'll just cut all of that together. It'll look great. Okay. And I was like, cool. Uh, and then the group shot took about 10 takes. So we were standing around for about 20 minutes in the hottest part of the office. And I was like, this is miserable. But just smile and wave. Hmm. Yeah. Like that. Well, my store is actually getting a remodel in a month. Oh yeah, they say for real. Haven't been they? Haven't they been saying that for, for like five years? Five years yeah. now, yeah. But apparently, it's legitimately happening. Okay. I had a my boss's boss came in and said it was happening. Well, if the boss's boss says it's happening, 
Until he said the, he talked to the contractor today. So until the boss's boss's boss comes in and yeah, says it's not actually then, happening. Yeah. Still holding out on it <laughs> not happening, but whatever. Well, I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. Hopefully, it'll ha- happen soon. Yes, seriously. Yeah. Uh, do you want to get into the episode? I'm ready to hear what you have to talk about. Cool. Um, I'm so drink this glass of wine while you do it. <laughs> Uh, the reason I recorded by myself last week uh, was because Rachel was in Montreal. Oh, yeah. And she was speaking French. We. Oui. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I told her that I was going to do a French woman this week. Um, and she could correct my French every time I mess up, which yeah. will probably be a lot. And I will not notice. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be talking about Louise Michelle. Have you ever heard of her? It's pronounced Michelle. Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, my belle. Uh, Louise Michelle was born on 29th of May, uh, 1830, as the illegitimate daughter of a serving maid, Marianne Michelle. She was raised by her grandparents, Charlotte and Charles Etienne Demahas, in northeastern France. She spent her childhood in the Chateau of Rancourt, La Côte, and was provided with a libertarian education. Mm-hmm. When her grandparents died, she completed the teacher training and worked in villages. In 1865, so she was about 35, Michelle opened a school in Paris which became known for its modern and progressive methods. Cool. Michelle corresponded with the prominent French romanticist Victor Hugo, who you may have heard of for uh, Les Miserables. That sounds familiar, it's, yeah. It sounds really familiar. I'm, I'm not sure if many of our listeners would be uh, familiar with it. That's right. Uh, it's kind of underground. Mm. Maybe another podcast. <laughs> uh, Not podcast, another episode. <laughs> <laughs> another episode. Um, we won't be doing an episode on Les Miserables, I promise no. you. I'll uh, sing the entire time you're really <laughs> monitor, but uh, you're not going to enjoy it. We'll, we'll do a, um, a two-person recording of the entire soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> um, she became involved in the radical politics of Paris, and among her associates were Auguste Blanqui, a socialist and political theory, uh, a socialist and political theorist who theorized that the revolution should be best completed by a small, highly organized group. Okay. Jules Vallée, a libertarian journalist and the author of um, a libertarian journalist and author who was later exiled to London, and Theophile Ferre known for authorizing the execution of the Archbishop of Paris during the Paris Commune. So she's got some some interesting friends. Um, In 1869, the feminist group Société pour la Revendication du Droit Civil de la Femme, or the Society for the Demand of Civil Rights for Women, uh, was announced by André Leo. Among the members of the group were Michelle, Paula Mink, Eliska Vincent, Ellie Reckless, and his wife Naomi, uh, Jules Simon, Caroline DeBarro, and Mar- Maria Derismes, Der maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You've got to correct me on that no, one. No, I cannot. <laughs> uh, because of the broad range of opinions, the group decided to focus on the subject of improving girls' education. Commonly known as the Revendication des Droits de la Femme, uh, the, the demand for women's rights. The, groom ha- the group had close ties with the Society Cooperative de Ouvois et Ouvois, the Cooperative Society of Men and Women Workers. Okay. The July 1869 Manifesto of the Re- Revendication des Droits de la Femme was thus signed by the wives of militant cooperative members. The manifesto was also supported by Sophie Doctrinal, signing with Ch- Citroën Poirier. Uh, who would later become a close associate of Michelle in the Paris Commune. You may notice that the words Paris Commune have come up a few times, and that's foreshadowing. Uh, In January 1870, Michelle and Leo attended the funeral of Victor Noir. Uh, Michelle expressed disappointment that the death of Noir had not been used to overthrow the empire. At the start of the Siege of Paris in November 1870, Leo, in a lecture, declared, it is not a question of our practicing politics we are human, that is all. As early as August 1870, the Prussian Third Army, led by Crown Prince Frederick of Prussia, uh, the future Emperor Frederick III, uh, had been marching towards Paris. 
The army was recalled to deal with French forces occupied, uh, accompanied by Napoleon III. These forces were crushed at the Battle of Sedan, and the road to Paris was left open. Personally leading the Prussian forces, King William I of Prussia, along with his chief of staff, Helmuth von Moltke, which sounds like a fake name, <laughs> uh, took the Third Army and the new Prussian Army of the Governor and uh, new Prussian Army of the Meus under Crown Prince Albert of Saxony and marched on Paris virtually unopposed. In Paris, the governor and commander-in-chief of the city's defenses, General Luis Jules Troca, assembled a force of 60,000 regular soldiers who had managed to escape from Sedan under Joseph Vinoy, or who were gathered uh, from depot troops. Together with 90,000 mobiles, territorials, a brigade of 13,000 naval seamen, and 350,000 national guards, the potential, of de uh, the potential defenders of Paris totaled around 513,000. Compulsory enrolled National Guards were, however, untrained. They had 2,150 cannons, plus 350 in the reserve, and 8, uh, kilogram, eight, eight million kilograms of gunpowder. Uh, in 1871, secret armistice discussions began to end the siege on Paris um, and continued at Versailles between Jules Favre and Bismarck until uh, the 27th of January. On the French side, there was concern that the National Guard would rebel when, uh, when news of capitulation became public. Bismarck's advice was to provoke an uprising then while you still have an army to suppress it with. The final terms agreed on were that the French regular troops, less than one division, would be disarmed. Paris would pay an indemnity of 200 million francs, and the fortifications around the perimeter of the city would be surrendered. In return, the armistice was extended until February 19th. After the Prussian victory, Wilhelm I was proclaimed German Emperor in uh, 1871 at the Palace of Versailles. The kingdoms of Bavaria, Württemberg, and Saxony, the states of Baden and Hesse, and the free cities of Hamburg and Bremen were unified with the North German Confederation to create the German Empire. The preliminary peace treaty was signed at Versailles, and the final peace treaty, the Treaty of Frankfurt, was signed on 10 May uh, 1871. Otto von Bismarck was able to secure Alsace-Lorraine. Alsace-Lorraine? Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Sounds good. The continued presence of German troops outside the city angered Parisians. Further resentment arose against the French government, and in March 1871, Parisian workers and members of the National Guard rebelled and established the Paris Commune. A oh, radical and socialist... Sorry. It pays off, right? Uh... They established the Paris Commune, a radical and socialist government, which lasted through late May of, eight, of 1871. So it lasted from March to May. Not very long at all. Nope. Uh, during the siege, Michelle became uh, part of the National Guard. When the Paris Commune was declared, she was elected head of the Montmartre Women's Vigilance Committee. Michelle thus occupied the leading role in the revolutionary government of the Paris Commune. In April 1871, she threw herself into an armed struggle against the French government. Mm -hmm. She closely aligned with Fair and Raoul Rigault, two of the most violent members of the Paris Commune. However, when she came to them with a plan to assassinate Adolphe Thiers, the chief executive of the French national government, Fair and Rigault persuaded her not to go through with her plan. Huh. Instead, Michel fought with the 61st Battalion of the Montmartre and organized ambulance stations. In her memoir, she later wrote, Oh, I'm a savage, all right. I like the smell of gunpowder, grape shot flying through the air, but above all, I'm devoted to the revolution. Respect. Respect. Women played a key role in the Paris Commune. They not only chaired committees, but also built barricades and participated in armed violence. Michelle ideologically justified a militant revolution, pr proclaiming, I descended the butte, my rifle under my coat, shouting, treason, our deaths would free Paris. Michelle would be among the few militants who survived the Paris Commune and reflected, it is true, perhaps, that women like rebellions. We are no better than men in respect to power, but power has yet to corrupt us. Oh, snap! Uh, in her memoirs, Michelle confessed that the realities of the revolutionary government strengthened her resolve to end the discrimination against women. On the attitude of her male comrade, she wrote, How many times during the commune did I go, with a National Guardsman or soldier, to some place where they hardly expected to have to contend with a woman? 
She challenged her comrades to play a part in the struggle for women's rights after men and women have won the rights of all humanity. In December 1871, Michelle was brought before the Sixth Council of War, charged with offenses including trying to overthrow the government, which she definitely did, (laughs) encouraging citizens to arm themselves, which she definitely did, uh, and using weapons and wearing a military uniform, which I'm pretty sure that she did. Yep. Defiantly, she dared the judges to sentence her to death, saying, It seems that every heart that screams for freedom has no other right than a bit of lead, so claim mine. Shit. She was hardcore. Yeah. Uh, Michelle was sentenced to penal transportation. It is estimated that about uh, 20,000 defenders of the Paris Commune had been summarily executed. Michelle was among 10,000 supporters of the Commune that were sentenced to deportation. After 20 months in prison, Michelle was loaded onto the ship Virginie on 8th August 1873 to be t- deported to New Caledonia, where she arrived four months later. Whilst on board, she became acquainted with Henry Rochefort, a famous polemicist, who became her, long, her lifelong friend. She also met Na- uh, Natalie Lamel, another figure active in the commune. It was this latter contact that led Louise to become an anarchist. She remained in New Caledonia for seven years and befriended her local, uh, the local Kanak people, taking an interest in Kanak legends, cosmology, and languages, particularly the Bi-Kelamar Creole. She learned about the Kanak culture from uh, friendships she made with Kanak people. She taught French to the Kanaks and took their side in the 1878 Kanak Revolt. Uh, the following year, she received authorization to become a teacher in Noumea for the children of the deported. Among them, many Algerian Kabbalais, or Kabbalais du Pacifique, from Sheikh Macroni's rebellion. In 1880, amnesty was granted to those who had participated in the Paris Commune. Michelle returned to, her, uh, to Paris, her revolutionary pas- passion undiminished. She gave a public address on 21 November 1880 and continued her revolutionary activity in Europe, attending the Anarchist Congress in London in 1881, where she led demonstrations and spoke to huge crowds. While in London, she also attended meetings at the Russell Square home of the Pankhursts, where she made a particular impression on a young Sylvia Pankhurst. In France, she uh, successfully campaigned together with Charles Mulatto and Victor Henri Rochefort for an amnesty to also be granted to Algerian deportees in New Caledonia. On March, uh, in March 1883, Michel and Emily Puget led a demonstration by unemployed workers. In a subsequent riot, three bakeries were pillaged. Reputably, reputably, that's better. Michelle led the demonstration with a black flag, which has since become a symbol of anarchism. Michelle was tried for actions in the riot and used the court to publicly defend her anarchist principles. She was sentenced to six years of solitary confinement for inciting the looting. Michelle was defiant, for a future of the human race was at stake, one without exploiters and without exploited. Uh, She was released in 1886 at the same time as Peter Kropotkin and other prominent anarchists. All right. In 1890, she was arrested again. After an attempt to commit her to a mental asylum, she moved to London. Michelle lived in London for five years. She opened a school and moved among the European anarchist exile circles. Her International Anarchist School for the Children of Political Refugees opened in 1890 on Fitzroy Square. The teachings were influenced by the libertarian educationist Paul Robin and put into practice Mikhail Bakunin's educational principles, emphasizing scientific and rational methods. Michelle's aim was to develop among the children the principles of humanity and justice. Among the teachers were exiled anarchists such as Victorine, Rouchy Brochure, uh, but also pi- pioneering educationalists such as Rachel McMillan and Agnes Henry. In 1892, the school was closed when explosives were found in the basement. Uh, Michelle contributed to many English-speaking publications. Uh, some of her writings were translated into English by the poet Luisa Sarah Bevington. Michelle's published works were also translated into Spanish by the anarchist Soledad Gustavo. The Spanish anarchist and workers' rights activist Teresa Claremont became known as the Spanish Louise Michelle. Uh, by the time that Michelle had become a well-known speaker, touring Europe repeatedly to speak in front of thousands of people, um, 
1895, Sebastian Fauer and Michel founded the French anarchist periodical Le Libertaire, or The Libertarian, <laughs> now called Le Monde Libertaire, or Libertarian World. Okay. In the same year, Michel met Emma Goldman, who I have spoken hey, about on the yeah. past. Hey, hey, uh, hey. Uh, she met, uh, they met at an anarchist conference in London, at which both were speaking. The young Goldman was hugely impressed by Michelle, considering her to have a social instinct developed to the extreme. In reference to the harsh conditions of Michelle's life, Goldman asserted, Anarchists insist that conditions must be radically wrong if human instincts develop to such extremes at the expense of each other. Michelle returned to France in 1895 and was not active in agitation provoked by the Dreyfus Affair in, uh, and was not active in agitation provoked by the Dreyfus Affair in 1898. In an 1896 article entitled Why I'm an Anarchist, Michelle argued that anarchy will not begin the eternal miseries anew. Humanity in its fight of despair will cling to it in order to emerge from the abyss. In 1904, Michelle went on a conference tour through French Algeria. Michelle was scheduled to meet with uh, anti-colonial campaigner Isabel Eberhardt, but Eberhardt died shortly before Michelle arrived in Algeria. Uh, Michelle passed away in January of 1905 due to pneumonia in Marseille. Mm -hmm. Her funeral in Paris was attended by more than 100,000 people. Shit. That's a lot. That's a shit ton. Uh, Michelle's grave is in the cemetery of levolet uh, Paré in one of the suburbs of Paris. The grave is maintained by the community. The cemetery is also the last resting place of her friend and fellow communists, Theophile Fair. Uh, Michelle was among the most influential French political figures in the second half of the 19th century. She was also one of the most powerful women political theorists of her day. Her publications on social justice for the poor and the cause of the working class were read in France and all over Europe. When she died in 1905, she was mourned by thousands. Memorial services were held all over France and in London. Although her writings are today forgotten, her name is remembered in the names of French streets, schools, and parks. Uh, Michelle became, uh, became a national heroine in France and was revered as a great citizen. A cultish uh, image of Michelle later emerged. Um, shortly before her death, when returning from her exile in London, Michelle had been dubbed the Angel of Petrol, the Virago of the Rabble, and the Queen of the Scum. Mm. Uh, in turn, Jar Charles Ferdinand Gambon compared her to Jean d'Arc, or Joan of Arc, if you... Mm -hmm. Don't speak French. <laughs> um, this imagery was further propagandized by Edmond Le Pelletier uh, in 1911, and the image of Michelle as Vierge Rouge, or the Red Version, came to be used by conservative and liberal historians alike when recounting the story of the Paris Commune. Uh, she is often considered the founder of anarcho-feminism, though there's some dif dispute about that. Hashtag armchair apocrypha. Um, despite the anti-authoritarian rhetoric, early anarchist thinkers maintained cultural or orthodoxy when it came to the division of domestic labor and their personal relationship with women. Uh, the founder of French anarchism, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, uh, was notorious for his sexist views. Michelle, Teresa Claremont, Lucy Parsons, Voltaire de Clare, and Emma Goldman, three people who I've spoken about on the yep. podcast before, um, became prominent figures in the late 19th century, pan-European and American anarchist movements. Uh, and with the formation of the first international anarchist sections in various European countries under the leadership of Mikhail Bakunin, uh, anarchism became noted for not only encouraging female participation in the political movement, but also for espousing the ideal of female emancipation. Uh, Michelle was rediscovered by French feminists in the 1970s through the works of Xavier Gauthier. Um, academic interest in Michelle's life and political writings was prompted by Edith Thomas's comprehensively researched biography. Um, and there is a station on the Paris Metro named Louise Michelle Station, named after her. Cool. Yes. That was beautiful. Thank you. That was well done. Thank you. I. It's been like two weeks since I researched her, so Cheers. I didn't remember a whole well, lot of that. Say, I wrote this a couple of days ago, yeah. so we'll, we'll see how it looks when I read it the first time in a while. And I'm pretty sure you know what I'm going to talk about, because I said, oh, I'm not going to talk about it, and now I am. I don't remember that. It's all right. Okay. 
so I became, well, you watched the second half of it, so I'm going to talk about Chernobyl. Okay. Because I watched the HBO series, and I was so fascinated. Yeah. Like, I knew about it, but not too much. And then I watched it. I'm like, now I'm going to research <laughs> it. The show is, it was so well done, yeah. I thought. And then I looked. Of course, the, they, like, add certain things, and there's this one woman character who they actually combined. Yeah. yeah. Who were, like, these 20 guys to be, like, the moral compass. Um... So it was all really fascinating. So I'm going to talk about Chernobyl and a very brief short... Oh, you were smart. In a very brief <laughs> short of time. Rachel is referring to the fact that I left the Prosecco, like, right next to me. Yeah. And was <laughs> I to my wine back in the fridge. But I still got, like, Reach half up. glass. I'm uh, pacing myself, so I'm going to congratulate it. Congratulations. Congratulate me. But we'll see how we do at the end of this. So, so as we may or may not know, Chernobyl is the name of the place. Mm-hmm. And it's where there was a nuclear plant in... I think that's still technically right, or the USSR at the time. Yeah, the territories moved around a lot. Yeah, that yeah. Time period. And I won't get into it too much, but um, so the basic concept is there was a sudden and unexpected power surge at this nuclear plant. Mm-hmm. When operators attempted a, an emergency shutdown, a much larger spike in power output cur- occurred. So it did the literally complete opposite of what it intended. Right. If you push the shutdown button, you're not expecting yeah. a power surge. And then basically after a while, a reactor vessel ruptured in a series of steam explosions. These events exposed a graphite moderator, which we don't need to go into too much detail. Okay. um, Causing things to ignite. And then for the next week, the resulting fire sent long plumes of highly radioactive dust into the atmosphere, which caused radioactive fallout over an extensive geographical area, including Pirapat, which is the the city where Chernobyl is was located okay is located it's still there sorry um the plumes drifted over large parts of the western soviet union at the time yep. and europe according to official post-soviet data about 60 percent of the fallout landed in belarus so here we go on april 26 1986 at 1 in the fucking morning right moscow time reactor number four so there are different reactors obviously at chernobyl and this yeah. is just the fourth one suffered a catastrophic power increase leading to explosions in its core. As the reactor had not been encased by any kind of containment vessels, this dispersed large quantities of radioactive isotopes into the atmosphere. I do know some science. I won't be able to go into too much detail about it. But the way that the show talks about it, it really helps you kind of explain it. Yeah. And caused an open-air fire that increased the emissions of radioactive particles carried by the smoke. The accident occurred during an a, an experiment that was actually scheduled to test the viability of a potential safety emergency core cooling system which required a normal reactor shutdown procedure so they intentionally meant for it to go haywire and then cause a shutdown to make sure that it would shut down well that's 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 ironic yes it is but we'll get a little more into that (laughs) so not going to detail but this um, mini series on hbo is literally has six hours to explain it, and they yeah. do a really good job. They clearly side with why they think it happened. Yeah. Um, Wikipedia says we'll never know for sure, obviously, but I like HBO's theory because it makes a lot of sense. Um, so here we go. And they also, they really do in like the last episode when they're giving testimony, a little snippet. Yeah. The one guy who's testifying on trial gives a really, really good, like, Basic level, basic level elementary school science explanation yeah. on how it was able, with the red how this catastrophe, yeah. yeah, was able to, weren't you able to follow that super yeah. easily? Yeah. And I think that really helps someone <laughs> in like layman's terms who hasn't taken a science class in like eight years <laughs> to understand, oh, now I get why it did that. Right. And I know it was really dumbed down science for us, <laughs> but I thought it did a really good job. So. The conditions to run the test were established before the day shift of April 25th, so the day before right. of 1986. The day shift workers had been instructed in advance and were familiar with the established procedures. A special team of electrical engineers was present to test the new voltage regulating system. At this point, though, another regional power plant unexpectedly went offline, and this was in Kiev in the USSR. Okay. Um, and they needed, um, they requested that further reduction of Chernobyl's output be postponed as power was needed to satisfy the peak for the evening over in Kiev, right. I believe. 
Um, so the Chernobyl plant director agreed to keep their power plant lower than normal and postpone the tests. So at about 11.04 p.m., the Kiev grid controller allowed the reactor shutdown to resume. Um, so it's really hard to explain this. But basically, this delay had some serious consequences. The day shift had long since left for the day, and the evening shift was also preparing to leave, and the night shift, the people who worked overnight at Chernobyl, would not take over until midnight, well into when the shutdown was already supposed to take place. According to the plan, the test should have been finished during the day shift, and the night shift would only have to maintain it, not, like, start it. They would just have to decay a a heat cooling system but it would already be shut down. The night shift, night shift had very limited time to prepare and carry out the experiment. Um, they had never done this before, unlike the day shift. Right. So here we go into some Russian names. Cern, <laughs> serving under Dyatlov, and the only reason I can pronounce these is because I watched them right. the show. Alexander Akimov was chief of the night staff, and this guy, Leonid, was the operator responsible for the reactor's like whole operation system. Yeah. So, and then Leonard was a young engineer who had worked independently as a senior engineer for approximately three months before this had happened. Okay. So he had no... Uh, so he's new. He's new and very fucking young. I think, yeah. well, in the show they say he's 25. I, I think he was, well, I don't want to spoil too much, but I think he was about 25, 26. Yeah. Um, so at 1.23 a.m., the test began. So basically, I'm going to cut through this a little bit because it made sense when I wrote it because I had just watched the show. Yeah. But basically, you had to take these pipes out to yeah, shut the, it down. The coolant tubes? The coolant tubes. Yeah. And you're never, like, say there's 200 and you never take out more than 100. Well, they took out like 194. Yeah. Basically, because that's what was happening. Um, um, because everything was becoming very unstable and very, very, like, off the charts, and they weren't understanding why it was happening that way. Right. Um, so what they did to fix it was they hit this thing called the EPS-5 button, also known as the AZ-5 button, which is what they called it in the movie. Don't you mean AZ? AZ-5 <laughs> of the reactor emergency. So a few seconds into this, a power spike did occur, and the core overheated, causing some of the fuel rods to fracture, blah, blah, blah. Um, do, do, do. So this thing was never supposed to go above 530 MWs. That's all I need to say to keep it in megawatts. Megawatt, yeah, to keep it simple. Then according to some estimations, the reactor's outputs jumped to around 30,000 megawatts. That's bad. Um, 10 times its normal operation output. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last reading on the control panel was 33,000 megawatts. It was not possible to reconstruct the precise sequence of the processes that led to the de- de- deconstruction of the reactor and the power unit building, but a steam explosion like the explosion of the steam boiler from excess vapor pressures appears to have been the next event. The whole point of like the first episode was they're saying it exploded, and they all these scientists are like, you tell me how does a reactor explode, because that they physically don't understand that can't physically happen. Yeah. And they keep saying, no, it doesn't exist. And they said, no, you're stupid. Go back and check. There's no such thing as this exploding. Yeah. And guess what? It, it exploded. It exploded. Um, see you. So there was actually two explosions. So there's the first one that was actually the smaller one. And then a second explosion occurred about two or three seconds after the first. So they were back to back. This ex- is the one that dispersed the damaged core and effectively terminated the nuclear chain reaction. Um, do, 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 do. So the radiation levels, this is what we all kind of know about. Yeah. So the ionizing radiation levels in the worst hit areas of the reactor building have been estimated to be 5.6 um, rotogens per second, Rs, equivalent to more than 20,000 rotogens per hour. I didn't know what that was either. A lethal <laughs> dose is around 500 in modern radiation units over five hours in some air in some areas. Unprotected workers receive fatal doses in less than a minute. Damn. Fatal. Shortly after the acid accident at 1.45 in the morning, firefighters arrived to try to extinguish the fires. First on the scene was 
um, a Chernobyl Power Station firefighter brigade under the command of Lieutenant Vladimir Prov Provik. Provik? Provik, yeah, who, who did die on May 9th, which is like two weeks afterwards-ish, in 1986 of, guess what, acute radiation sickness. They were not told how dangerously radioactive the smoke and debris were and may not even have known that the accident was anything more than a regular electrical fire. That's right. kind of what they were, thought it was. Um, the fire inside Reactor 4 continued to burn actually until May 10th, 1986. So it wasn't put out until like weeks later. Wow. It is possible that well over half the graphite had burned out of the system. I would imagine, yeah. Um, the fire was extinguished by a combined effort of helicopters dropping over 5,000 metric tons of sand, lead, clay, and neutron-absorbing boron onto the burning reactor and injecting of liquid nitrogen. It is, not, it is now known that virtually none of the neutron, neutron, neutron. Sorry, reached the core. Historians estimate that about 600 Soviet pilots risked dangerous levels of radiation to fly the thousands of flights needed to cover reactor number four in this attempt to seal off radiation. From eyewitness accounts of the firefighters involved before they died, as reported on the CBC television series Witness, one <laughs> described his experience of the radiation as tasting like metal. In the whole first episode, yeah. you see all these firefighters and all these engineers like going around while this fires burning and they're like do you taste metal do you taste metal and you just know as the uh as the viewer like oh damn that's not good <laughs> i don't know science that well but that's not good, that's not good. <laughs> um and a feeling and feeling a sensation similar to that of pins and needles all over your face uh, that would be unpleasant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. this is similar to the description given by louise slotten a manhattan project physicist who died days after a fatal radiation overdose from a critical accident um, R.I.P. Yeah. Cheers. Sip. Ting. <laughs> so evacuation. The nearby city of Pirapat. 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 Yeah. Was not immediately evacuated because they don't want to say that anything bad happened, and they. And actually, in the show, they think initially it wasn't as bad as it was, yeah. which I think i'm gonna cross my fingers i think i explain why that is they weren't that like trying they weren't trying to kill people or anything i think they generally didn't think it and i if it's not explained here in the next couple of minutes then i'll explain it okay um the townspeople in the early hours of the morning at 124 a.m that time went about their usual business <laughs> i would be sleeping <laughs> yeah completely oblivious to what had just happened however within a few hours of the explosion dozens of people fell ill Later, they reported severe headaches and metallic taste in their mouths. Again. Yeah. We see a theme here. Along with uncontrollable fits of coughing and vomiting. As the plant was run by authorities in Moscow, the government of Ukraine did not receive prompt information on the accident. A commission was established later in the day, like later that morning, yeah. to investigate the accident. They flew, um, doo -doo -doo. They flew people internationally to get there, like, the next evening. Yeah. And by the time those two people had arrived, um, two people had already died and 52 were already hospitalized. Okay. Doo -doo -doo. The delegation soon had ample evidence that the reactor was destroyed in extremely high levels of radiation, had caused a number of cases of radiation exposure. In the early daylight hours of April 27th, which is like the day after it happened, approximately, here we go, sorry, 36 hours after the initial blast, they ordered the evacuation of Pat. So, like, when they actually did find out, yeah. it was the, and it was a day later, which is almost too late at that point sometimes yeah. for radiation. They're like, oh, we have to get these people the fuck out of here. Um, they ordered the evacuation of Pat. Initially, it was decided to evacuate the population for three days. Later, uh, this was made permanent. So, they thought, oh, three days, they can come back. Yeah. Um, and we'll get back into their, the population at the very end because it's pretty interesting. So by 11 a.m. on April 27th, so two days after, or one day after, sorry. A day and some hours. A day and some hours. Um, buses had arrived in Pat to start the evacuation. It began at 2 p.m. To expedite the evacuation, residents were told to bring only what was necessary and that they would remain evacuated for approximately three days, like I said earlier. As a result, most personal belongings were actually left behind and remained there today. Wow. 
and by 3 p.m., 50,003 people were, were evacuated to various villages of the Kiev, regi- Kiev region. Sorry, 53,000 people. Yeah, what did okay. I say? I think you said 53, uh, 50,003. It was oh, sorry, 53,000. 53,000. It's a decent uh, city yeah. size. Um, the next day, talks began for evacuating people from the 10-kilometer range. Ten days after the accident, the evacuation was expanded to 30 kilometers, so three times that size. And then this exclusion zone, quote-unquote, has remained ever since, actually, although its shape has changed and its size has been expanded since okay. then. Um, so let's talk about the debris removal. There's some really good scenes about that. Yeah. I think you were here for that. Them shoveling off the roof? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's mentioned here. Because there's so much shit. They didn't talk about shooting like the straight dogs in yeah. this article. Or I skipped it because there's so much shit that happened with this. Um, the the show is intense. It's it very is intense. very intense. And I literally binge watched it <laughs> in one day. I watched it from like 3 p.m. Yeah. to 10 p.m. So in the months after the explosion, attention turned to removing the radi- radioactive debris from the roof. The rest of the radioactive debris was collected inside what was left of the reactor. However, it was estimated that there was approximately 100 tons of debris on the roof that resulted from an explosion and which had to be removed to enable the safe construction of the quote-unquote sarcophagus. So they wanted to like take it down yeah. and then basically encompass it. Um, so long story short, people who died of the radiation or like a lot of reactive parts so when people die they didn't just bury them they bury them and then cover them in cement wow and so that's kind of like what they're trying to do with this radioactive material and we can't really do that if it's on a roof so usually you take it off. usually i reserve that for uh, zombies mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. want zombies yeah coming back. that's a great way to actually bury a zombie yeah. Um, so a concrete structure which would entomb the reactor and reduce reactive dust from being released into the atmosphere the initial reactor or the, sorry, the initial plan was to use robots to clear the debris off the roof. How did that work, Andrew? Not well. It did not. They The Soviets used approximately 60 remote-controlled robots, most of them built in the Soviet Union, although many failed due to the effective the effect of high-level radiations on their electronic controls so they would like not work after two seconds of being on the roof. So what do you have to do? Consequently, the most highly reactive materials were shoveled by Chernobyl liquidators, is what they were called. From the military wearing heavy protective gear dubbed bio-robots by the military, these soldiers could only spend a maximum of 40 to 90 seconds working on, excuse me, working on the rooftops of their surrounding buildings because of the extremely high doses of radio- radiation given off the blocks of these graphite and other debris. Like, that just is so mind-boggling to me. And, like, our Earth produces this. Um... Bad news for anyone who wanted to use the Liquidators as a band name. There's oh. already a band called the Are Liquidators. Are they called the Chernobyl Liquidators? Uh, the band is just the Liquidators. Okay. But you may, if you wanted to be the Chernobyl Liquidators, that's, <laughs> a, that's a good band name. Though the soldiers were only supposed to perform the role of the bio-robot in maximum of once. So they could literally only be on this roof, or were supposed to hypothetically be on it. Once for 90 seconds, and they're like, you can't anymore, it's too... A minute and a half? <sighs> yeah. So, though these soldiers were only supposed to perform the role of bio-robot a maximum of once, some soldiers reported having done this task five or six times. <laughs> Which is like five, eight minutes. Yeah. Jesus. Only 10% of the debris cleared from the roof was performed by robots, with the other 90% removed by approximately 5,000 men who absorbed, on average, an estimated dose of 25 rems of radiation each. That's not good. No, I think think it takes like five years after life or something like that. That's not good. If not more. Liquidators worked under deplorable conditions, poorly informed... And with poor protection, many, if not most of them, exceeded radiation safety limits. Some exceeded limits by over 100 times, leading to rapid death. So that's great. So here's some environmental effects that I didn't really, I mean, I thought, I never, like, processed the extent of the environmental effects, to be honest. So although no informing comparisons can be made between the accident and strictly airburst-fused nuclear detonation... Sure, whatever. It has still been approximated that about 400 times more radioactive material was released from Chernobyl than by the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, 
By contrast, the Chernobyl accident released about one hundredth to one thousandth of the total amount of radi radioactive released during the area of nuclear weapons testing at the height of the Cold War. 1950s and 60s is what it says. Yeah. With one one hundredth to one one thousandth variance due to trying to make comparisons with different spectrums of isotopes released. Um, approximately 100,000 square miles, and for Americans, 39... Or sorry, 100,000 square kilometers right. for Americans, ourselves included, 39,000 <laughs> square miles right. of land was actually significantly contaminated with the fallout, with the worst hit regions being Belarus, Ukraine, and obviously Russia. I do want to take a minute to uh, urge Americans to switch over to the metric system. Because they it's tried just, that. It's just and so it much failed. easier. Do you remember? Well, we just, weren't, no, we weren't alive. so much easier. I think it happened in the 80s. I do not. It, I, was, I was born in 89. Mm-hmm. I was at the very tail end of it. Yeah, remember when they tried it and then everyone just poo pooed about it and then never switched over? Americans, I'm 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 urging you, just switch over to the metric system. It's it's so much. It's easier. not that hard. It's it's not that hard. Um. So slider levels of contaminations were detected all over Europe except for the <laughs> except for the Iberian Peninsula, and I did not look that one up on why. <laughs> um. So the Chernobyl uh, power plant is located next to the Pirapat River, which feeds into the Dnieper. How do you pronounce that? They pronounce it all the time on there. Uh, I'm not sure. Dni they Dni said it all the time on the show. No. D-N-I-E-P-E-R. Dnieper uh, Reservoir. Yeah. One of the largest surface water systems in Europe, which at the time supplied water to Kiev's 2.4 million residents. Small. And was still in spring flood when the accident occurred. The radioactive contamination of aquatic systems, therefore, became a major problem in the immediate aftermath of the accident. Um, and in the show and in this article, i.e. Wikipedia, right. it talked about the three guys who sacrificed their lives to go in and shut it off, but I didn't have time for it. Um, but basically, they did it, and they did survive. Cool. Um, I mean, it showed them surviving in the show. They didn't, like... Ex they but they they made it sound like they were gonna die in like the next couple of days, but in reality they all actually survived for a longer yeah. time. Um in the most affected areas of the Ukraine levels of radioactivity, particularly oh nope. <laughs> levels of radioactivity and drinking water caused concern during the weeks and months after the accident, though officially it was stated that all contaminants had settled to the bottom in an insoluble phase and would not dissolve for eight hundred to one thousand years. So we don't have to worry about that for eight hundred years. Yeah. So we're fine. Doesn't have to. Doesn't bother us. When when will that be? Uh, uh, 20, 27, 80. 2780? Yeah. So if you're alive 80, in twenty seven eighty, um, you may want to get your drinking water tested. Yeah, over there. Yeah. Uh, guidelines for levels of radio radiodyne in drinking water were temporarily <laughs> temporarily raised to thirty seven thousand bg slash l allowing most water to be reported as safe. And a year after the accident, it was announced that even the water of Chernobyl's plant cooling pond was within acceptable norms. Despite this, two months after the disaster, the Kiev water supply was abruptly switched from that river to the, another river. <laughs> meanwhile... Meanwhile, Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water. Yeah. Geez. Sorry. And 12-year-old girls are raising money for it. Mary Copenny? I think so. Mary with an I? Just like our Mary. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cute. I follow her on Twitter. Oh. Meanwhile, massive silt traps were constructed along with enormous 30-meter deep underground barriers to prevent groundwater from the destroyed reactor entering the Pirapat River. Do -do -do. Basically, they also had to cut down all the trees and all the power and like do something with the soil because if the rainwater goes in, absorbs it and absorbs back up into these clouds and puts them somewhere else. It's like you're spreading radiation, radiation everywhere. So they thought all that through, which I was like, that's when I was like, oh, I'm really stupid. I never <laughs> thought about that. Um, and they had to kill all the dogs and all Aww. the wildlife. Well, they didn't actually kill them all. They tried to. So they wouldn't spread. Um, but I'll, I think I get into that a little bit. There's also a band called Radioactive Rain. I believe it. There are so many bands that are just taking uh, taking their names from our episode. So, here we go. After the disaster, four square kilometers 
A pine forest directly downwind of the reactor turned reddish brown and died, earning mm-hmm. the name of the Red Forest. Some animals in the worst hit areas also died or stopped reproducing. Most domestic animals were, were removed from the exclusion zone, but horses left on an island in the Parapet River from the power, uh, six kilometers from the power plant died when their thyroid glands were destroyed by radiation noises. So what I did read is a lot of animals who were left there and a yeah. lot of people who didn't like refuse to leave had thyroid cancer. So it did something to your thyroid. Yeah. That was like the biggest cause. Um, and like they saw a huge increase in thyroid cancer years later. Um, so some cattle on the same island died and those that survived were stunted because of thyroid damage. The next generation appeared to be normal though. And I think I'll get into it later, but okay, I'll mention if it doesn't. So the after effects of Chernobyl were expected to be seen for a further 100 years, although the severity of the effects would decline over that period. Scientists report this is due to the radioactive casium-137 isotopes being taken up by fungi such as Cortinorius separatus, which is in turn eaten by sheep while grazing. So Radioactive fungi. Yeah. So the impact in the accident's aftermath, 237 people suffered from acute radiation acute radiation sickness, of whom 31 died within the first three months. On the death poll, the report states that 28 emergency workers, liquidators, died from acute radiation syndrome, including beta burns, and 15 patients died from thyroid cancer in the following years, and it is roughly estimated that cancer deaths caused by Chernobyl may reach a total of about 4,000 among the 5 million people residing in the contaminated areas. So, of all the 66,000 Belarusian emergency workers by the mid-1990s, so 10 years later, the government reported that only 150, roughly 0.2%, of the population died. In contrast, 5,722 casualties were reported among Ukrainian cleanup workers up to the year of 1995 by the National Committee for Radiation Protection. Okay. It is difficult to establish, this is the thing it says everywhere though, the actual total economic cost of the disaster and how many people died. But according to Gorbachev, the Soviet Union spent about 18 billion rubles, the equivalent of about 18 billion at that time, US dollars, or 35.7 billion dollars today's money. That's a lot of money. Yeah, on containment and decontamination, virtually bankruptcying itself. In 2005, the total cost over 30 years for Belarus alone was estimated at 235 billion U.S. dollars and about 297 billion dollars in today's like inflation. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Politically, the accident gave great significance to the Soviet policy of Glasnost and helped forge closer Soviet-U.S. relations. Actually. Actually, helping end the co- the Cold War, some say the disaster became known became a key factor in the UN's eventual 1991 dissolution and major influence in shaping the new Eastern Europe. Both Ukraine and Belarus, in their first months of independence, lowered legal radiation thresholds from the Soviet Union's previous elevated thresholds for that water contamination. Um, An area originally extending 30 kilometers in all directions from the plant is officially called the Zone of Alienation, which I think is a... Let's see if that's a band name. Is that a band name? Zone of Alienation. It is largely uninhabited except for about 300 residents who have refused to leave. The area has largely reverted to forests and has been overrun with wildlife because of lack of competition with humans and space for resources. Even today, radiation levels are so high that the workers responsible for rebuilding the sarcophagus are only allowed to work five hours a day for one month before taking 15 days of rest. As of 2016, 187 locals have returned and were living permanently in the zone. So you've got 487 altogether? The 300 who refused to leave and the 187 who returned? Well, no, no, no. So there are 300, so some may have passed away since then. So it's 187 as of 2016, well, that they counted. Like, some could have been hiding. But, uh... There is not a band called Zone of Alienation. However, Stealing has an album called Zone of Alienation. So if you're a metal fan, um, you could always make a Stealing cover band or something. Yeah. So that's a little bit about Chernobyl. And what they do say about, 
like with animals and things, they're a lot more deformed, a lot have some mutations, but some don't. Yeah. So it's not like. But they still say that the entire place sh- is should be uninhabited for like the next one thousand years because yeah. of the radiation levels. They've recently talked about this on uh, My Favorite Murder too, right? That's how you um, heard about it. Well, yeah, the one woman was like, um, you can go visit there because they do do tourist yeah. things there. And they've actually seen an increase since the show has popped yeah. up. But it, she jokes on the podcast, like, you can go there, but they say it takes five years off your life. And she jokes, well, why do I want to live to be 85? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. Mm. She wants to go visit there. But, well, we saw the video that they videotaped there. So there's so many, like, leftover clothes and shit because yeah. it's all so radioactive. You can't take it anywhere. Right. And it's so weird because you think it's nothing. Like, oh, it's just a piece of clothing. Let me touch it. Right. And then... And you take five years off your life. And then, yeah, you well, inject pot- yourself with radiation. Potentially. I don't... I'm not going to mess with yeah. that shit. Russian roulette. One of the biggest things, like, one of the things that was so... From the show is the one woman... Spoiler alert. <laughs> skip, like, a minute if you're going to watch and don't want any spoilers. But the one woman who's married to the firefighter... Yeah. And everyone kept telling her, like, don't touch him, don't go near him. And you she, have to stay on the line. She she kept going fucking near him, kept touching him, kept hugging him. He was so infected. He was so had such yeah. radiation. And he died. And then she was pregnant at the time. And the whole thing was, like, she was pregnant. She gave birth. And I guess she gave birth to stillborn because her baby absorbed all the radiation that she had gotten. Yeah. Which wasn't um, cool. And then Not apparently it was parenting. based... Of a true story, because yeah. then doctors said she wasn't ever going to have birth, but... But she did. She did. Um, and then I another thing that I kind of left out in here, but I did read about it, was there's a huge spikes in abortions, because everyone was scared that it was going to do something to their body, to the baby, to whatever. I could see that, yeah. Even though, like, no one knew for sure, because, like, it's a scare. It's a panic attack. Uh, um, I can't remember the number, so I'm not going to try it. Yeah. Uh, if... Uh, I'm just going to plug this uh, contact your local abortion clinic see if you can escort on Saturday mornings there's only one in Kentucky there is only one in Kentucky but Planned Parenthood has sued the state for uh, an abortion license oh, Okay. so there may soon be two I don't believe it when I yeah. see it yeah. Um, yeah yeah I don't want to end on that note but <laughs> um, like this is like a huge event that happened, I mean, right before our lives started, yeah. but it was huge. And I know it's on the other side of the world, but it's still very, very fucking prominent. And um, it is only one of two nuclear plants that have had a level seven. It's almost like uh, earthquakes. And the other one was happened in Japan um, in like 2010. Yeah. And a couple people died. That uh, was the tsunami, right? Yeah, it was yeah. because of the tsunami. So that's why I didn't see, I didn't even go into the whole reason on whose fault it was. So basically the whole thing is like the AZ5 button was supposed to do a certain thing, but it was supposed to shut down the system. But actually it, previous tests from other years have shown that it doesn't do that. It does yeah. what exactly happened to this plant and people knew about it and didn't say anything. But the guys in charge had no idea they actually thought it would shut it down so they hit the buttons thinking it would shut it down and it didn't so some people say you knew that this would happen or no they didn't know it would happen the whole reason was like it was literally like a boiling pot was the whole setup because the one reactor needed this power reactor to be lower than normal yeah so it was basically way lower than it should have been for 12 hours longer than it needed to be yeah and then the people coming in the night crew didn't really know. No one knew that because it was, it's hard to explain it, like in, like without being a scientist or knowing, but basically if it, if the reactor, from what I got from the movie, it, or if the reactor was at the right level when they started the emergency shutdown, it should have gone fine. But since the reactor was at the wrong level yeah. for over 12 hours, it became very, very unstable for 12 hours. Yeah. And then hitting a button just made it go explode. Yeah. So that's the whole theory is, was it user error? Was it 
no one tell anyone about what the emergency button does. Well, it was all of it. It was literally, yeah. it couldn't have come out in a worse possible solution. If they had taken a day mm-hmm. and let the reactor go back, back to normal, it wouldn't have happened. Ooh. If the government had published the reports that the, uh, the what, what, is it graphite? Yeah, the graphite. The graphite rods, those caused explosions. If the people working the plant knew that graphite rods could cause explosions and mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't have pressed it if they hadn't rushed the experiment if but they wanted to uh if the night tr- if the night crew had been trained properly mm-hmm. there's so many things that could have happened to uh, stop it yeah but it was just literally like one like five things that shouldn't have happened which made this disaster yeah. happen basically which is so unfortunate yeah. but that's how unfortunately a lot of shit happens uh I didn't mention this when we were watching it, but uh, Dyatlov, the guy who the show kind of blames for oh, rushing yeah, the experiment. Oh, yeah, totally blames. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Have you ever heard of that? Who? What? Dyatlov Pass. No. Uh, so it's I feel a, like it's named after him. I, I don't think it's named after him. I think they just share a name. Oh, okay. Uh, but it was a number of scientists who were found naked in the snow. Oh, no, I don't think it was. Uh, <laughs> It, let me check it real quick to make sure I'm not giving false information. Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, nine nine skiers slash hikers in the northern Ural Mountains in the former Soviet Union uh, between the 1st and 2nd of February 1959 uh, died due to unclear circumstances. Uh, their tents had been shredded. They were all naked. Um, it's believed that they may have been suffering from paradoxical. Uh, what's it called? Paradoxical. Oh, I feel like I know what you're talking about. Um, what's it called when you get too cold? Hypothermia? Yeah. Oh. Paradoxical hypothermia. Uh, when you suffer from uh, paradoxical undressing and fatal hypothermia, you pull your clothes off um, because your body, uh, it's too cold, oh, but yeah, your brain yeah. misfires and says that you're warm, so yeah. you start undressing, which makes it's you the colder. you're like sweating. Yeah. You're, you're like, like sweating because ugh, you're so cold. So it's so terrible. Um, but the Dyatlov Pass incident, for all of you uh, cryptid crew people, um, that's what it reminded me of that dude's name yeah yeah love pass um i think that's all that we have for this week that was a good one it was a long one it was a very long one (laughs) (laughs) um it was really good uh thank you for talking about chernobyl no problem um nuclear power plants on each (laughs) time if you watch the show uh it's so well done it's really intense. It's really well done. Uh, there have been some hot takes about it being a critique of communism, which I don't no. think it is. Oh, I don't well. think that the I, um, that, but... I don't think the show lends itself to that reading, and the uh, I get that vibe. the executive producers have said that that's not true. So <laughs> if if you're one of those I people, I was really focused on just the yeah. whole incident. If you're one of those people who are like, "Oh, communism is bad because of Chernobyl," maybe rethink your life choices. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I've seen Twitter is a terrible place, Rachel. It's just oh, so I, bad. I don't. I only go on there for <laughs> news. I don't do anything, anything else on that shit. I don't tweet yeah. anything. I don't do anything. I don't look for anything. Yeah. I don't do any famous people. I just look at news. That's how I got my uh, hot gossip yeah. slight on the two debates, and then I still don't even know. Ooh, I do have a challenge for you, and we can retweet this on our, our actual Twitter. On our actual Twitter, okay. I have a challenge for you. There's a Shit. video. Um, it's an advertisement, and I want to see if you can guess what the product is. Oh, damn. Before it reveals what the product is. And it's really <laughs> difficult. I did not get it. Mary did not get it. Oh, okay. I want to see this. <laughs> okay. Wait. Cool. Um, we're going to get out of here. We're going to do this <laughs> challenge and we'll retweet it on the Twitter. So okay, you can, um, <laughs> you can do it yourself at home. Uh, Abigail, if you hey. are listening to this, I got your email. I'm going to be doing that next episode. Um, 
just stay tuned and we'll do that <laughs> next episode um you can find us on facebook at absinthe activism arts you can find us on twitter at absinthe act arts you can find us on patreon at absinthe activism arts uh you can find us on you can find our website at absintheactivismarts.wordpress.com. Uh, I am on the Fediverse at AWM Rights. I am on Instagram if you want to see cute pictures of Mercury mm -hmm. at AWM Rights. Um, what else do we have? I always feel like I'm forgetting one thing. Katie's artwork? Uh, you can find Katie's artwork on our <laughs> website at absintheactivismarts.wordpress.com. Uh, we've got music from Joshua Paul Brooks. He has been putting out a lot of good stuff. I'm going to be boosting that on facebook next weekend if you're interested in um he's a good singer songwriter uh he's been writing songs about his time uh in afghanistan um it's really good stuff and he's a comrade so you should go give it a listen uh we've got music from chad osman that was our original theme song if you remember that mm -hmm. uh i haven't been in touch with him lately i hope he's doing okay um, but you should go give a listen to the original theme song because it's good music. Um, some of my writings are up on the website, mostly the free horror stories, uh, but also by my books. I've got a Southern Noir called In the Shadows of My Mind and a, um, a Las Vegas crime novel, anti-fascist novel called Red Hats and Black Masks. Both of those are on Amazon in both paperback and e-books. E cool. Uh, is there anything else? I think we're good. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> we got it all. Uh, Mercury is begging for us to take him outside. Take him outside right before he dies. So uh, we're going to get out of here and give him the attention that he so desperately needs. Uh, and you all have a great week. We will see you next time. We love you and uh, take care. Mortar shells have deafened my ears but the ringing has lessened the dreams I've dreamed they've threatened my sanity at your presence is a blessing for you make me forget the times tragedy and I had met and the nights I'd awakened in sweat seems the years before you were my greatest debt Honey darling, look above The moon fits the clouds like a glove Honey darling, my love Sometimes I fish the sky for what I'm thinking of Cause my tongue stays tied in knots this feeling inside, can I ride it to the top? My hands have closed the gates. Now we're inside, let's love and leave it up to fate.